The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How we doing? Good to see you guys. Hope you had a great holiday. Hey, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high and wave it around as if you had no concerns, and someone will get one to you. A um, couple of announcements while that's going on. Uh, midweek services kick back off this week, and uh, you know, Awanas will be going with the kids, all that stuff. And Wednesday night, we're starting a new series. Um, for the next six weeks, we're going to do a home improvement series. We're just going to look at relationships um, all the way across the board, not just marriage stuff, but all the way across the board. And so I uh, encourage you guys to jump in and get involved in that. That'll start this Wednesday night at 630 um, also, Huddle Life Group training class is Thursday night at 6.30. So if you want to be involved in our community groups, which we highly, our, our end goal, just so you know where we're leading you guys, what we want from all of you, like where are they taking us? Here's where we want. We want to see everyone at Heritage committed in service and committed in community. Those are the two goals we have for everybody. And so we want to encourage you guys to get involved in our huddle groups and community groups. And so this Thursday night um, is the class that you take before joining a community group that talks about the purpose of our huddle groups, what we're trying to accomplish in them, what uh, community life looks like and all that stuff. So that'll be this Thursday at 6.30 over by eight o'clock, light snacks provided. Or maybe heavy snacks, who knows, we'll see. Depending on your, uh, your uh, what do you call those things? New Year's resolutions. And then also, um, right after service today, um, if for those who can, lunch will be provided, but we need help getting these trees down and out of here. So if any of you are able to or are planning to help us out, we really, really appreciate that. So Luke chapter 6 is what we're going to be in today. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, focusing really on 17 through 26. And uh, as, as you guys are turning there and everything, um, it is um, New Year's resolution time. I'm just curious, how many people already have a little bit of a list going on? If, you don't have to be afraid. Come on, it's okay to have a New Year's. I'm not going to make fun of them. You can raise your hand. New Year's resolution list. We have a few different people going on up there. Um, I found the top 10 most common New Year's resolutions that are out there in uh, increasing frequency, you might say. Uh, number 10 people resolve that in 2018 they want to improve a relationship. Number nine, spend less time on social media, which is funny because I found this list on Twitter, but um, that's all right. Um, Number eight, they want to volunteer or give back, which could be complicated or difficult because number seven is to travel more. Um, Number six, to eat healthier, boo to that. Number five, to be smarter with money. Number four, to drink less, which those people usually make that one up tomorrow morning is what usually actually happens. I will never do that again, that kind of stuff. Number three, learn a new skill. Number four, quit smoking. And the number one answer is lose weight. That's the number one thing. So how many of you, just out of curiosity, you don't have to say which one, did I hit on any of them? Raise your hand on that. There's quite a few in there, yeah? Um, Well, we're at the perfect text today. Um, to be considering New Year's resolutions, last day of 2017, first day of 2018, and this is the perfect text as God would have it for us to be at as we look forward to the year ahead. Um, Because that's what you do. I mean, it's the last day of 2017, so what we tend to do is we look back on where we've been, 
We look at what the year's been like. We look at where we've been, where we've come through, the things that have happened, where we are today. So we do an assessment of where we're at and and we do that in mind, thinking about where we want to be. So when you guys make New Year's resolutions, you're making them thinking, I don't want to be in the same place today as I, as I, as I, I want to be somewhere better, you might say. And so all, all that stuff from like New Year's resolutions, you know, um, uh, I want to lose weight. So like you guys know for the next three weeks, it is the worst time to go to the gym of the whole year because all the machines you're used to getting on with no waiting line, they're all full for the next three weeks, but gym people hang in there. They'll all be gone soon. Just hang in there. And, and they're the ones who sign one year gym commitments that keep your gym prices down. So celebrate them. Don't be upset with them. You just got to roll with these three weeks, but whatever happens, how However long you hang on to that resolution, whatever it is, we're all doing the same thing. This is where we've been. Let's assess where we are now and where do we want to go? And the new year's resolution is really you making your plan to get there. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be like this. So I'm assessing my life and making a decision on where I want to be. And this is the perfect text for this. So I'm going to let you guys remain seated today, but Luke chapter six, verse 17 says this. And he came down with them. So this is Jesus and the them that he came down with in chapter, in verse uh, 12 through 16, it names off the disciples that Jesus has chosen. So he comes down with the disciples and stood at a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did with the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let me ask you a question. If you think about this list, the blesseds, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. Does that sound really blessed when you just read down that list? Blessed are you if you are poor. Blessed are you if you are hungry. If you are either one of those two, you are actually a target for our Christmas outreach and our Thanksgiving outreach programs. Does that sound blessed? Blessed are you if you weep? What? Blessed are you if you are hated? left out or talked bad about. And then how are these woes in the culture that we live in? Woe to you, which it it, it means horrible, horrific, terror, horrifying. If you are rich, if you are full, 
if you are laughing, if you are spoken well of. My guess is none of your New Year's resolution lists were like, I want to be poorer, I want to weep more, and I want more people to dislike me and leave me out of things. I'm just guessing that didn't make your list. It certainly wasn't in our top 10. Because when we do these things, we want our life to go the other direction, right? We want to go from poor to rich, hungry to fed, weeping to laughing, rejected to popular. That's how we define success. So no one is going to make a to-do list or a, a New Year's resolution list that goes the direction that Jesus is talking about here. What do we do with these? Here's something you have to understand. Jesus is spoken of in scripture as teaching with authority. And it's not just that he had this bellowing voice that could get people to do what he wanted them to do. That's actually not true in most places because most of the people that heard him teach didn't do what Jesus wanted them to do. The authority that Jesus spoke with was an understanding about how really things are. So he was able to speak with an authority knowing how the world worked knowing how things are put together, knowing how things are going to be in the end, regardless of whether the listener actually obeyed it or honored it or heeded it, he could speak with total authority because he knew, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, he knew. So when Jesus teaches here, he's not wishing and he's not suggesting. He's not going, I hope the poor are blessed. I hope the hungry are filled. No, he's saying things as they are. He says, the poor are blessed. He says, the rich are in trouble. So it'd be really good for us to understand this and understand how this plays out, especially if we're in a place today where we're like, okay, we want to reflect on where we've been, think about where we want to be, and make decisions on how we're going to get there. We want to be blessed. If you're looking to honor God, you want to be on that list, but it doesn't look like a great list. So we need, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time unpacking this. And here's what I want you guys to do the entire time that we're doing this. And these aren't usually popular sermons, but, but here's what I want you to do. The whole time that we're unpacking this and the question that we're going to come back to when we get to the end of all of these things is this, where are we? Or, but not in general, you specifically, where am I? Assessment day, where am I now so that I know where I need to be, and I know what needs to change to get me there. Where am I? That's the question that we're going to ask. And so while we've just read the text that we're going to study, what we're going to now do is unpack this and let the actual text kind of read us, if that makes sense. So I want you to take a minute right now to just bow your heads and just ask that the Spirit of God will speak. Because here's the thing, guys. When we do these kinds of things, um, sometimes... Actually, I'd say most times, these kind of it's kind of hard to teach blessings and woes in a way that doesn't step on our own toes somewhere along the line. And so sometimes that kind of conviction can be uncomfortable, can be a downer to some degree. But here's what we have to understand. People of God, listen to me. This is what you have to understand. Conviction is a grace from God. Self-awareness about where we are now, even if it's not comfortable, is a gift and a grace from God because he's trying to show us that he wants to take us somewhere different. So right now, do me a favor. Bow your heads and ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. That if there's uncomfortable conviction that has to happen, invite the Spirit of God to do that this morning. Will you? Bow your heads and pray with me.
Father, self-assessments are difficult, oftentimes, Lord, because we've been blinded. So often, Lord, we convince ourselves that we're doing maybe better than we are or that we're in a different place than we are. But Lord, though it may be difficult, we yet recognize that your word is given to us for our benefit. And I pray, God, that this morning your spirit would move in this place in a really powerful way in the heart and soul of everyone here. If there are people here, Lord, that don't know you, may you wreck their paradigms, melt their heart, and pull them close to you. And for those of us here that do know you and do love you, but where there's growth that's necessary in our life, where there's maybe sin that has taken hold, or, or whatever the case may be, God, will you change us? Help us to understand that you discipline those you love and that your word is given to us for our good and for our joy. And I pray against condemnation because that comes from the enemy. But I pray for conviction for all of us because that comes from the loving hand of the Father who desires our best. So may we leave this place blessed. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so here's how we're going to do this. We're going to be taking these verses two at a time. Because as we work through the text, you're going to see that for every blessing on one side, there is a counterpart in the woes. And they work together. So we're going to work through these things collectively as we go. So we'll start in verse 20. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now its counterpart we see in verse 24. Verse 24 says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, or you have received your reward, your prize. So we know that Jesus doesn't hand out salvation based on economic status. If that was true, every college kid that eats ramen noodles would be saved. But it's not true, Right? We know this. So it can't just be about money. And by the way, some of these are things we've been talking about for the last few weeks. So if it sounds redundant, it's because God really wants us to get it. Amen? So, so it's not about just economic status. That's not what he's talking about here. And so we want to know, well, then what is he talking about? Many of you know this. If you don't, you need to write this one down. The best teacher of the Bible is the Bible. Do you guys know that? The best source to go to to understand Scripture is Scripture. So, for example, in this text where he says, blessed is the poor, he can't mean that just poor people who have no money are going to be blessed. Well, in Matthew, we have a little more detail, a little more information that helps us kind of unpack and understand this some. So Matthew 5, 3 says this, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is not about external economics. This is an inward heart issue that he's talking about here. And we've talked about this a lot lately, but let's revisit this. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus is saying, blessed. You are in a good, blessed place if you have nothing to offer to God. You're in a good place if you are not, as you might say, in a place where you're holding God in your debt. You say, what do you mean by that? It, meaning like God owes you salvation because you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. 
and God doesn't owe you, or, and God owes you salvation also because you don't do this, 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 and this. We're talking about standing before God. God approves of me because of these things. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The person who's blessed is the one who stands before God and says, I have nothing. I have nothing that could ever buy me a position of favor before a holy and mighty and good God. I have nothing. This is what Christ meant when it says that he came to preach good news to the poor. And we see this and it makes sense when you study through the gospels and you read and you notice who are the people that are always upset at Jesus's teachings. It's the religious leaders of the day. Why? Because their whole life is built on, look at me. I do all of these things and that's what makes me a Christian. Or religiously accepted by God, whatever the case may be. This obviously before. I am favored by God. And there was like a hierarchy. Like they wouldn't even touch people who aren't. And it's just this idea of like, I, and they say to Jesus, we wash our hands before meals. Your apostles don't. We do this. We do this. We do this. Your people don't. You don't. And there's this constant Jesus coming and teaching these things is tearing down everything that these religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees have built their entire existence on. We are awesome because we do all this. And then Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. You're, you're blessed if you're spiritually poor. Because the gospel teaches us that we have sinned before a perfect, mighty, and holy God. We have rebelled against him. And even our own works of righteousness are like filthy rags before him. There is nothing we can do to bridge the gap that exists between our broken state and God's perfect holiness. There's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. And so God himself came. He sent his son to live that perfect sinless life that we never could. He went to the cross and carried the weight of all of our sin and shame. And the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. He rose again and uh, triumphed over death. He's ascended into heaven. And now for those who come to that place of spiritual bankruptcy that realize the only thing we stand on is the righteousness of God, we have none to stand on. That's the blessed place to be. Because when we go to heaven, it's the righteousness of Jesus that brings us in. And listen to what he's saying. He's like, listen, the present power of the kingdom of God on hand available to those who have nothing. But what's the, the contrast to that? Woe to you who think that your discipline, your self-control, your good deeds here on earth is what is going to get you through. Woe to you who stand on your works and your own track record as evidence of your spirituality. Woe to you. Because it will be lacking. It will not be enough. And woe, again, means horror. He's saying it is a horrific place when you are standing on your own works and your own righteousness. That is a horrifying place to be. But to the one who says, I have nothing to offer and throws himself on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, he says, the power of the kingdom of heaven available to those who are in that place. But woe to you that think it's your works. Verse 21, that's a happy start, amen? It is a happy start. 
Because if we had to stand on our own track record, what would that really look like? We'll get to that in just a second. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And its counterpart, verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So what does he mean by this? He can't be talking about food. That's not not what he's talking about. Those who are starving are more spiritual. It's not what it means. So we again go to Matthew chapter 5 to help us out. Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now you Bible students, I want you to pay attention as we go through these things. There's a progression here. It's not random things compiled into a list. There is a progression through these things. And so think about this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so for they shall be satisfied. This is what he means. Blessed are you, though you are aware of your spiritual bankruptcy, you are aware of your sin, you are aware of your brokenness, you are aware of your frailty, but you desperately want more. You you want reconciliation. You long for forgiveness. You want relationship with God, though at times you wrestle even with your own soul, feeling like you're not even eligible for it because of our brokenness. Blessed are you who hunger for the righteousness of Christ. And what does he say about it? For you will be satisfied. Now let's, let's follow up on something that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Because a couple of weeks ago we talked about the church kind of being a hospital. And we talked about the idea that um, a lot of times what the church has done, and if we use like a hospital as an example, we've put a perimeter around the hospital and it's like checkpoints. And we've created cultures at times where people in need of coming to the hospital have to prove that they're worthy to get into the hospital before they can get help. So it'd be like a guy trying to get to Rogue Regional Medical Center with a, a leg. He's bitten off by, I don't know, a shark. And he comes to the hospital, it, it can happen. So he comes to the hospital, legs bleeding all over the place. Hey, what do you need? My, my leg's bitten off, man. I need to come into the hospital. I need some help. And we're like, well, gee, you're not coming here with all that blood everywhere. This place is clean. Do you know how important cleanliness is in here? We can't let that infection spread in here. We can't let any of that happen. So here's the deal. You clean some of this up. You get that bleeding taken care of. And then we'll hang out in here and we'll talk to you. But for right now, kind of hang out right there. no. That would be ridiculous. But that's happened in so many different church cultures. So many different church cultures. There's a phrase, um, I've heard Matt Chandler say this even over and over before. It's okay to not be okay here. Right, church? It's okay to not be okay here. But what happens next? What happens after that? And and so let let me put it this way. Like, Conversion stories are like awesome and sexy and exciting and, and, and we're drawn to them sometimes. And I can remember growing up and hearing that we'd have like testimony Sundays and, and it was always like, let's get the most jacked up people that have just got saved to give their testimonies. You know what I mean? Because those are exciting stories that will get people fired up. You know what you don't hear a lot of? Here's my story of how the next six years went. Those aren't interesting stories. Those are rough stories. Those can be frustrating stories. Those can be depressing stories at times. And, and so here's what would happen. I remember growing up and we would have like testimony services or people would come into the youth group and, and 
the stories would be like these horrific, you know, um, here's where I was, man, uh, a preach, I had a needle in my arm as the preacher was talking, you know what I mean? Just things like that, just crazy stories going on. But, but now they're given this testimony and it's like their superhero cape is just flapping in the wind right behind them and they're like this. And now I never desire any of those things again and I'm never tempted by things anymore and I've memorized all of the Old Testament. I'm almost done with the New Testament. Three times I prayed and all of Starbucks got saved like, and all I do is read and read the Bible and pray all day long. Read the Bible, pray, read the Bible, pray, eat, read the Bible, pray, read the Bible, pray, eat. I only eat communion. That's all I do. I am a super Christian. And then you add to it bad teaching that says things like, if the spirit of God is in you, you wouldn't desire these things anymore anyway. And then I'm going, uh oh, um, cause I kind of still do. And I'm, I'm wrestling with some stuff, but apparently I'm the only one. Because then we, we all start faking and we pretend that we've got it all together and that we're nailing it and that we're righteous and, and everything's perfect and polished. And then me on the inside, I'm like, I'm the only one. And that's why so many of us that grew up in like denominational churches and stuff like that got saved, what, 14, 15, 16 times? Or baptized over and over and over. Why? Because it didn't take. Because I'm still wrestling and they're not. And so what do I do with this? I, I don't know how to deal with this. And then my family fell apart. And then another family in the church, as I got older and I could see behind some of the facades and things like that, man, my dad's an elder in the church and had an affair and ran off and all these kind of things. And suddenly it was like all the facades start to crumble and like, I started realizing it was a lie. And, and here's the thing. We fake it because we would rather be a hypocrite than be seen as a hypocrite. You got that? Like we fake it because we'd rather be one inwardly and secretly than someone think that we are because we claim Christ, but we still struggle with something. And so it creates this false persona of things that are going on inside the church. It's not healthy. It's not good. This is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The idea of even building relationships with unbelievers and helping them understand that this is a place where they can come for healing. Not putting a perimeter around God and saying, clean yourself up before you come to Jesus, but saying Jesus came for the broken, right? right? It's okay to not be okay here, right? But it's not okay to stay there because who would go to a hospital that no one ever gets better at? Like, why would you go there if no one ever walks out of there doing any better than they were than the day they went in? And, and so we have to know, like, there should be a hunger for better. Doesn't mean perfect, but a desire, even a frustration in our soul. Like, I want different. And I know that's challenging because some of us, if we're honest, we would say, but I don't have that hunger. I know I should, and I don't know what to do. We'll get to that. But Jesus says, blessed are those. May not be okay. They're spiritually bankrupt, he's saying, but they want better. They want a relationship with God. They want reconciliation with God. There's longing to be with God. And you say, well, I, I'm there. My frustration is, is when will I get better? Because I feel like I'm always in that place. When will I get better? When will I ever be free of the stuff that I'm constantly wrestling with? And I think everyone else is, is, has been fixed. Of. Listen, I'm, I'm not saying 
that salvation comes by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And then once we're saved, now we have to, through our own efforts, prove to Jesus that we were worth saying. I'm saying we strive for righteousness, but we are relying on the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the gospel in our lives. And we keep walking. And if we fall down, we keep walking. Odds are we're closer than we actually think we are, but we keep walking. But here's, here's the thing. If you're not, if you're content to not change, if you're content to not grow, then you're actually walking out. You just don't know it yet. And you won't be here very long. The sin that you're complacent with will own you at a certain point, and you'll walk out. You'll walk away. There should be a hunger for righteousness, but woe to the full. The opposite to that is woe to you if you think you've arrived. Woe to you if you think you're good. Because repentance is a lifelong process. I think it was Martin Luther that once said, all of life is repentance. You never stop. Learning, we never stop learning. Growing, we never stop growing. We never stop changing. If you think you've arrived, woe to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The moment we get to that place where we go, I'm good, I don't need anything. Nothing new to learn. I am solid. Man, I am, I am perfect and sinless and all. Woe to you. Verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And its counterpart in verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, I want you to follow the progression that's taking place in this text, okay? I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God. And that's who he saves. But I want to grow. I want to change. I'm hungry for righteousness. You're going to be filled. But I'm weeping now. That constant, when will I be done with this? When will I be set free from this? When will this all be gone? When will I be different? When will this stuff not happen anymore? Now, in, in the scriptures, there's two different kinds of weeping that can take place. There's worldly sorrow that's, I made a mess out of my life. I really wish I hadn't. But that's just regret. The, the kind of repentance that the scripture talks about when he's talking about weeping here is the idea that we realize we have sinned before God. We have sinned against God. The God, that our sin is what Christ paid for on the cross, that there's an actual mourning even in that sin that then says to God, I submit to you. I submit my life to you. I'm not going to try to excuse it. I'm not going to try to pretend that it's not as bad. I'm not going to try to any of that kind of stuff. I'm just sorry and I submit to you and I want to follow you now. What have your way with me? And he says to those, you'll laugh. What does he mean? You're going to be set free. Just trust him. Just follow him. But man, this stuff's following me around like luggage, God. Like it's not ever going away. Listen, trust him. One day, probably sooner than you think, you're going to realize the deliverance of God. You're going to see what he's taken you from. You're going to see where you are today. That might even be today for some of you as you're doing some of this. And you'll be filled with joy realizing what God has done for you. But woe to you who laugh now. Ecclesiastes 7.6 says this. 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. What does that mean? It means only a fool laughs when he's on fire. And there are a lot of people that are going, it's no big deal. I'm fine. All this sin stuff and all these kind of things, the Bible. I'm fine. I prayed the prayer when I was a kid. I'm good. And you're playing church. You have no desire for righteousness, no hunger for righteousness, no spiritual bankruptcy, no weeping, mourning over sin. It's not a big deal. We'll just smile and laugh and just roll through life having a good time. Eat, sleep, and drink. How's it go? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we'll die. But I know I'll be good because I got my fire insurance. And the scripture says, listen, if, if there's no mourning over sin, if there's no understanding of what your sin has done for God, if there's no desire for growth, if there's no, no repentance whatsoever, you're not saved. You go, Jeff, how can you say that? Because the scriptures say that. That's what the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer. That's what the process of sanctification is. And too many people, because they prayed a prayer or something, just live their lives the way that they want and just laugh and chuckle and all. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I do. And they're fooling themselves and thinking they're fooling others and God. But man, the scripture is given lots of horrific stories. But Lord, Lord, look what I did. And he says, what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Woe to you if you think you're full. Woe to you if you think you're good, for you shall mourn and weep, the scriptures say. It's a happy text, right? Amen? Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And its counterpart, verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So let's clarify something. If you look back at verse 22, it says specifically, okay, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spur your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Really important distinction to make. Because there's some people who are hated and reviled and spurned who are Christians, but it's because they're jerks and no one really likes them, and it has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. So that's a real important clarifying mark. If you're just sort of a self-righteous or pompous or whatever jerk, and you're just like mean to people and they revile you, you don't go, well, it's my cross to bear. No, you are in sin. You are not blessed. You look nothing like Jesus. This isn't what it's talking about. Follow the progression. Spiritually bankrupt. Hungering for righteousness. Mourning over sin. The process of sanctification is the Holy Spirit turning us from who we were into the image of who? Jesus. So the idea is, as the Spirit works in your life, you get to a place where you look like Jesus. And because of that, people hate you and revile you and spurn your name, and all these kind of things. Now, there's a couple of different ways that, that are reasons that people struggle. 
with Christians or with Christianity or those who are following Jesus. One of them is just the gospel itself. The, the gospel itself is offensive to those who reject Jesus. I mean, to, to tell someone you're not good enough, uh, you're not good enough to come before God, that you need someone, like that is a, a terribly offensive message to very, very many people. And so there, just the mere fact that we are Christians and believe in Jesus is enough to earn spurn, to earn uh, this kind of hate and rejection and things but for a lot of people in the world. But for some people in the world, they're going to reject you and your decision to follow Jesus. It, it actually is kind of because of some of our history. And it might not have anything to do with you. Um, like, I'll give you an example. Here's, here's some church history that I've learned about. Um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a wave of liberalism in the United States that just kind of swept through the country, in particular in public institutions and educational systems. So most people don't realize this, but really liberal schools today like Yale, Princeton, Harvard, places like that, those were like super solid biblical institutions for a really long time. But then when liberalism swept through the country and those institutions made shifts away from traditional Christian values, what Christians did at that time, and mostly mainly fundamentalist Christians did at that time, is they completely withdrew from secular institutions. So pull out of those schools, surrendered that territory, and built their own institutions, built their own schools, insulated themselves from the world. It's, it's what the fundamentalists largely did. Now, we don't typically like fundamentalists a whole lot. It's a weird name, as they say. Um, you shouldn't call a fundamentalist a fundamentalist because there's nothing fun about a fundamentalist, and they tend to be really judgmental and finger-pointy and all that stuff. But in reality, we do have a little bit of a debt of gratitude to them in that that instance because we would probably look just like Europe had that not happened. Um, but that's what they did. So they withdrew. Now, as Christianity matured through the years and as things changed and shift as they tend to do, churches started re-engaging the culture. And what they found is there's a lot of baggage now. There's a lot of baggage now. So like I, I saw this interview with a guy who had just got saved. He's given his testimony story. Um, he, he got saved as a male prostitute and he's HIV positive. And as he's telling his story about why it took him so long in life to come to Christ, he kept pointing back to the 80s. He kept saying, the church I saw in the 80s, the, P, the Christian I was introduced to in the 80s, he was constantly pointing back to the 80s. Why? Well, when AIDS, remember in the 80s, those of you that were, you know, watching TV other than cartoons then, you remember in the 80s, AIDS was in the news all the time. We didn't understand it. We didn't really know where it came from. It was constantly in the news. And what was the most common official stance of the church with regards to AIDS? That's God's curse. That's God's dealing with you for your rebellion and your sin. And the church stayed out of it, washed their hands of it and said, well, this is what you asked for. And so, so many people did not want anything to do with the church because the church would not engage them now. So now, when the church goes to engage with people like that, you think there's some baggage you have to sort out after all that? You better believe it. I, I got a good friend of mine that I fish with, actually, and, and he actually used to go to church in a really super, super hyper-Calvinist church that was really big time on um, on. Uh, predetermination and on all that kind of stuff. And, and he actually suffers with seasonal depression. So every winter about this time of year, as the weather changes, the days shorten, the Oregon rains move in, all that kind of stuff, 
he tends to go into a funk. And I used to have to like call him and all but beg him to go out and go fishing because he would end up in this kind of like, I just want to stay in my room, just want to stay away. Well, back in the day when he was going to that church, nobody really understood a whole lot about depression to the degree that we do now. And churches in particular were not being very gracious regarding mental illnesses and depression. And so he was told by this particular church, look, you wouldn't be struggling with this depression if you actually had the spirit of God in you. It's probably evidence that you're not one of God's elect because Christians have joy and you can't seem to get there. Now he'll talk to me. He will not walk through the doors of this church to this day. So some of it is our own baggage that we've created in the way that we deal with people, but some of it is just the reality of the gospel that, look, the words of the gospel are, are an aroma of life to those that are being healed. But, but they can be absolute words that like the stench of death to those who are refusing it. But here's the thing. Follow that progression. If you've never been in a place in your life anywhere where you have offended someone or been rejected by someone because of your relationship with Jesus. It's one of two things. Either you don't look like Jesus or you're not around people who don't. It's gotta be one of the two. Because this is what Jesus promised for his followers. There would be persecution. This kind of stuff would happen. And again, follow the progression. Blessed are you who are spiritually bankrupt. You will be saved. The kingdom of heaven is for you. And look, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you're hungry for righteousness. You, you realize your bankruptcy, but you want so much more. The spirit of God is available for you. And as you weep over your sin, God is healing you. But what's happening the whole time is that the spirit of God is turning us into the image of who? Jesus. And looking like Jesus in a world that rejects Jesus will inevitably cause those kinds of things. Now, here's the beauty of it. While that's promised, the beauty is we don't have to sit in anxiety over that. Like I was even, I, I was hanging out with some people not too long ago and we were sitting around this fire, kind of fire pit at this place over here in Medford and there were different people there that um, some of us knew each other and some of us didn't. So there's just conversation around the fire pit as it went and it inevitably comes to those questions like, so what is it that you do? So they're all going around and I know it's coming, right? I know it's coming. So they're going around the thing and it's like, I do this, I do this. I'm a firefighter, I'm a policeman. I'm, one guy with special forces, he got all sorts of questions. And then the guy next to me turns to me and says, so what is it you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh. So anyway, and he turned, like turned, like not just go back to the other guy, but like full blown, turn his back, turn to the other people. He's like, so this whole, the Air Force, what's all that like for you? Like, and did not speak to me the rest of the time, wanted nothing to do with me. But here's the thing, for me, that's cheating. That's a title. You know what I mean? What he's talking about here is like, hey, look, for my name, as you who are spiritually bankrupt, come to the saving grace of Jesus and the power of the spirit of God begins to work in your life, changing you into my image, creating in you a heart that mourns over sin and desperately longs for righteousness. As I change you into my image, it's not always gonna go well. And people will reject you for my sake. People will revile. Now, I went to the national championship basketball game last year. Some of you guys remember North Carolina, God's favorite team, won the national championship. And as we came 
as we came out of the arena, we were just like joyously celebrating and, and just, you know, exuberantly praising God that, that justice had been won and Carolina had won the championship and, and just the kingdom was, was coming to play on earth like that. It was just a great thing. God was pleased. And we're walking out. And as we get to one of the street corners, there's a guy there with a megaphone and he's like blasting everyone who's walking right at him saying, you've been worshiping in the temple of Satan. You need to repent. You need to repent. And the things people said to that guy, they reviled him. They mocked him. They rejected him. And guess what? He deserved it. He was being a jerk, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about following Jesus living like Jesus, but also at times speaking the truth like Jesus did as well is going to cause conflict. But the beauty is we don't have to lay in bed at night anxious over this, figuring out like, oh, I wish I'd remembered some of them prophetic lines about like fire and brimstone because I would have nailed that sucker when he rejected me today. Like we don't have to do that because we are accepted by who? We have a heavenly father that has already, the king of the universe has said to you, you're mine. I want you. Who cares what the guy at the pub said? The creator of heaven and earth chose you, adopted you, put his favor on you. When you realize that, that he picked you who was spiritually bankrupt, you don't have to lay in bed at night figuring out how you're going to get people back who rejected you. You can lay in bed at night praying for them, saying, Lord, may they experience the grace that I experienced because they don't even get it yet. And they're lost and they're dying and they're fooling themselves. Lord, save them. But woe to you if everyone loves you. Woe to you if you don't want to speak truth, you just want to tickle everyone's fancy and just... Never be offensive and don't be like Jesus. It, it probably means you haven't changed all that much. Woe to you. Now, so here's the question. Where are you? Where are you at? It's last day of 2017. New Year's resolution time. Let's not only make New Year's resolutions about physical body, which is going to expire at one point, or treasures and things that we can't take with us anyway. What's the most important things we could be prioritizing in our life? Where are you blessed, full, rich life or a fool fooling yourself, thinking you're fooling others, laughing your way to a really dark place? Where are you? I'm going to ask Sam to come back up. He's going to play some cry tar, some guilt tar up here. But look, I, I want you to take an opportunity because that's not a question you can just go, oh, I'm about a seven. Scale of one to ten, about a seven, seven and a half. No, this is a soul-searching thing. And remember, conviction is a grace from God. It's a gift. It's God pointing out something in you that is unhealthy, that is stealing your joy, that is robbing you of what he wants for you. Receive it, even if it's painful and difficult. Self-assessment is not easy but it's important. So Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Where am I, God? And where do you want me to be? Will you bow your heads and spend some time doing that right now?
blessed, deep, full of life are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are hungry to be righteous and grow, for it will be granted. Blessed are you who mourn over your sin and your brokenness. For one day you will be set free and you will laugh. Blessed are you who love Jesus in such a way that it's changed you. To a degree that you even suffer rejection for it. For God has noticed, and your reward is great. But woe to you who are self-sufficient. Woe to you who are proud of your religious lineage or heritage. Woe to you who have it all right. Your pride is your reward, and there'll be nothing else. Woe to you who pretend to be full, but you're starving. What an empty place that is to be. Woe to you who laugh and think, no big deal, while your soul decays. And woe to you who are loved by all you really haven't changed that much. Now the good news is that the grace of God covers us. Because like I said, if we're being honest and we're thinking about things like hunger and thirst for righteousness, all of us would want to hunger more, I think. But if we're being really honest, some of you might say, I want to, but I, I just don't. I don't know what to do with that. And this is what I'd say. It's okay. Start there. But don't fake it. Don't pretend. Don't act like your leg's not broken. Come to the healer. Remember the text at the beginning? The setting for this whole teaching is that the multitudes were coming and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. But go to him broken. Don't pretend. best place to be is pleading with God. So take a minute and do just that, okay?